So, Mark, probably get into the chapter a little bit, but by way of introduction, uh, this book is unique in a few ways. Um, it is what scholars will use a bunch of these terms that they throw around. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what they call synoptic gospels. And the idea there is symphony, uh, that they, they work together to tell the same story. They're in harmony together. And uh, John, you know, certainly does, but it's a very different uh, book. Um, you know, it's, well, we might say, the same song sung in a different key or something like that. You know, he's, he's uh, you know, approaching especially the deity of Jesus Christ in a much more direct way. Um, Mark is uh, that Mark which Paul had such great conflict with um, Barnabas over. And uh, Mark was the nephew uh, to Barnabas. Uh, the conflict uh, was, uh, I think, very fitting, and that's why I even bring it into the discussion, um, in that Mark, uh, you know, left, abandoned the work that Paul and Barnabas were doing. Uh, so, young man uh, travels with them deep into their uh, missionary work and then suddenly wants to go home. Um, you know, imagine um, you take a young person into the mission field and now somewhere deep in the process where you're very dependent upon them you know maybe it's just for basic stuff can you make these photocopies can you you know get some lunch for us this afternoon can you you know play guitar while we're you know i don't know what uh, but you're dependent upon him and suddenly not there and now you've got to be concerned about getting them all the way back home now now multiply that by many factors you're in the ancient world right there's no, oh, well, let me just see what airline tickets are available. Um, you know, so-and-so will meet you at the bus stop. None of, you know, we're going to, you got to go all the way back home via, you know, boat, ship, walk, good grief. You know, I, I mean, for someone, you know, don't, don't think of Paul as, you know, the angry old curmudgeon. Think of him as the deep-hearted, loving minister that he is and his love for Mark. And now suddenly I've got to make sure this young man gets home safe. You know, think of the perils that Paul went through and now they're going to separate ways and this young man's going to, you know, go back home. So there's a lot uh, within that. Um, he becomes the disciple of Peter, which th think about Peter right? A man who turned back, a man who knows what it's like to not just be called a failure, but to be a failure, right? And what it means to be restored in the process, you know, and by the end of Paul's life, 
Paul is saying, send Mark to me. You know, he is such, I'm paraphrasing, but just such a great minister. I, I love him so. You know, th there's been a healing in the process, and we'll talk about uh, some of that as we move through this. But th this young man, now an adult, working with Peter, and there are traits all throughout the book, but the scholars have discovered the church history that tells us that Peter worked with Mark and they developed this gospel together. That, that this is a collaborative work of memory and insight that, that they bring to us. So really quite unique in, in all of the scripture. And, and think about, you know, that process of, you know, you're working with two quitters. <laughs> They're working together uh, to uh, put together an important message about the continuation and the consistency of Christ and how that has affected their lives. Uh, scholars often point out uh, shortest of the Gospels. Uh, how about most concise, right? The, these guys get to the point, right? Uh, you, you hear Mark repeatedly say, and immediately after that, and immediately after that, you get the sense of the urgency in how they put together this message. One that's just, and we were, and then immediately after that, this followed. And then this occurred and transpired, and then immediately after that, sort of that abrupt snap change, you know, quick shot of, of what was going on in these ministries. So... It begins uh, by saying, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. And, and this becomes a major theme of several of the gospel writers to tell us these things were recorded by the prophets beforehand, and you know now we are witness to these things having transpired a very significant element in all of the gospel uh, you know not that it's just uh, you know these are our opinions this is what we think this is how we view these things to be faithful to record that look the lord predicted these things as going to transpire if you can close those doors that'd be great so, uh, you know, the, the, the trustworthiness of the Scripture, that, that the Lord uh, predicted these things and the ministry uh, that is going to take place, we open with a discussion of John the Baptist. And uh, in, in that, that the Lord knew these things were going to transpire. John is just such a great... Uh, example, and, and we don't get a lot of the backstory that um, the other Gospels give us. Um, I was unaware of uh, one of the uh, apocryphal writings uh, about uh, John up until recently. Uh, a person called me up and said, have you ever heard this about John the Baptist, of how he and his mother were uh, sheltered inside a cave and protected from Romans that were seeking to kill them and all this different stuff. And 
let's just stick to the scripture, not uh, right the the uh, uh, things that are you know uh, extra biblical, as they say. You know the, uh, the you know the, the message that that is recorded there later. Uh, talks about Zacharias, his father, as being the high priest. Zacharias was never the high priest. Uh, So when you find blatant falsehoods in legend and myth and even ancient writings, uh, there's a reason certain things were not included in the Scripture. You know, the, the, the early church leaders recognized, oh, this is dramatically flawed. You know, a bunch of people jumped on the bandwagon and literally tried to get followings of their own uh, going. Even much later, uh, you end up with the Gnostics trying to grab some of the attention from Christianity unto their own religion. So, you know, be aware that those things are out there and you don't have to be overly concerned about them. Uh, Something that is quite unique about John is... Uh, it's a little extra biblical, but I find it uh, really interesting and probable is that, uh, one, we know with a certainty that his parents were extremely elderly. So, uh, you know, the the description uh, of, of being sold that they were bent over with age and um, the, that terminology reserved for someone that was 80 years old or more. And, you know, she gives birth to him. Well, I mean, that's quite miraculous all within itself. But now you have to kind of assume that they wouldn't live for a long time into John's own life. So uh, the probability that he found himself orphaned at a fairly young age uh, leaves him in a place of solitude, emotionally and spiritually. Uh, you know, his attire, which we'll talk about, and his diet and his behavior and his location, very similar to the Essenes, who were all from the tribe of Levi, so thereby they should be part of the priesthood, but they as a group recognized the corruption of the priesthood and had departed to live in the wilderness alone, right where John comes out of the wilderness and begins to baptize. John's father himself was a priest, right? Burning incense, serving in the temple, but he doesn't follow that pattern. So the next we see him, he emerges from the desert dressed like the Essenes, preaching a very similar message to theirs, filled with a fire that is similar to their behavior. So there's some speculation there, but uh, I find it interesting and certainly parallel, supportive to what we see in the Scripture. In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. I send my messenger before your face. So the your is Jesus. There's going to be a messenger who goes before you. And he is going to be preparing your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And we know later that was John's confession 
about himself, right? As they come and say, you know, basically, who do you think you are? <laughs> and, uh, you know, are you the, the prophet that they were expecting? Are you Elijah? You know, they got all kinds of speculation. He just said, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, <clears throat> which he is. You know, he's, he's out in a place that no one frequents at this point. So the voice of one uh, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Interesting choice of words uh, by the prophet, by John, because uh, this becomes a commonplace figure and statement in the Roman Empire. When the emperor or the king was going to come to a certain land, town, or province, if, if they had time in preparation, the Romans were famous for their roads. Uh, they would go and do this very thing. If they knew next summer on a certain date the king is going to be in that town, construction would begin immediately. And they would grade the roads, literally. Horse-drawn graders, cut down hillsides, tear into everything, fill, level. I mean, you know, you traveled over a goat path to get into your town forever. And now that the king is coming, there's this cobbled road that is constructed, you know, in order for you uh, to get to where you're going. Uh, so it is, this idea of this statement is, is exactly what the Lord is saying about the spiritual preparation. You know, if, if our heart is a twisted, bumpy, difficult, gnarled thing, then the call is coming from the Lord to make the passageway for the Messiah, for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to have clear passage straight into his throne. That all things, all barriers should be removed. So, so it's a thing that's understood conceptually for hundreds of years as the prophet makes the statement and, and the spiritual leaders derive this understanding. But by the time Jesus arrives, there's a literal political experience that is reflective of this. That, oh, <laughs> we must be having a visit from somebody important because, look, they're finally paving the road. They're finally doing the work. And that was supposed to instill in them the sense, you know, of what Isaiah 40, verse 3 was saying about this preparation. Now, you know, think about that, you know, hundreds of years earlier. A statement is made, and now that they're experiencing it, they're like, huh, Isaiah really knew what he was talking about. You know, this, this is an experiential thing that we're living out. How, how odd is that? You know, there's, there's some similarities that we can uh, derive and uh, discover. Something about this statement, the messenger is uh, that term herald, right? Like the one, the the crier, the town crier would come and stand at his post. You know, hear ye, hear ye, and everybody would have to pay attention. If you want the nightly news, then you got to go down to the public square and listen to the town crier. 
you know, uh, Jamestown, uh, we took uh, the kids on a uh, field trip and uh, down there, the, the reenactments that go on and they have town criers and they, they are giving the specific actual messages that were delivered on specific dates that they, they have the history of. It's significant in regard to the herald messenger, town crier, doesn't just get to show up and say, I've got something I think everybody should listen to and start spewing his own thoughts. His message is someone else's message. John's message is the Lord's message. And it was recorded by Isaiah the prophet. And here he is obediently delivering that message, that message of repentance, that message of make straight the way. You know, the, the, the metanoia of turn, beginning with your mind around. Turn your mind around 180 degrees, but you must also accompany your behavior with that. It has to turn around 180 degrees and now rather than the opposition path you had previously where the Lord's will was flowing one direction and you were pushing the other direction, right? You, you need to cooperate with the Lord. I took uh, uh, 35 kids years ago from Calvary Chapel, Bangor, down uh, to Lincoln, New Hampshire, for the Inside Out Soul Festival before it moved over to Gunstock. And they, right in front of the ski resort, <clears throat> there's a huge river that runs through there. And uh, took the kids down in the water and cool off and swim and uh, experience a couple of things. I showed the kids, you know, you get into where it's deeper and just grab a hold of like one rock. And just, just start to lift your feet and straighten you right out. You know, the force of that river, you know, you can resist until a certain point, you know, your ankles and even up to your knees, that river's moving so fast, you go to put your foot down and your leg gets sort of yanked off to the side. You get at hip level, you got to be paying really close attention, you know, up to your chest, you know, rock to rock, clinging, digging. The Lord's will is going one direction, and it takes a lot of effort to continue to resist that, especially the deeper in that you get. Right? You 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 wanna you wanna stay shallow? Stay shallow with the Lord. You can plod along and do stupid things. <laughs> you you say, I want to be deep, I want to go the full distance. It's better to just go with the flow at that point. You, know, you, you turn that whole illustration around and think about the force of the world, right? Oh, you want to stay shallow when it comes to the force of the world. You know, it's better to not get in at all. And if you have to get in, stay shallow, stay grounded. Don't get deep. It'll sweep you right off your feet. You'll lose all kinds of ground. You'll be way you know, farther away from where you intended to be. You know, the Lord will teach us those lessons. So the, the, the messenger, the herald comes, and this message of 
make straight and prepare the way before you, you know, the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, get these things out of the way. Now, so interesting. The history of this, well recorded in a lot of different regards, John was documented by historians other than the biblical authors. So we have Josephus and other Roman senators that kept record and a lot of history. John shows up on the scene, creates quite a stir. Interesting that uh, collectively, not just from the scripture, uh, we're able to determine that more than a million people went out to see John in the wilderness. That's pretty amazing. Okay, this is not some small thing. I, I, I Hollywood bugs me so bad. You know, they depict something, and here's you know twenty five people. <laughs> no, he was thronged by people continuously uh, in this process, based upon what we understand. 500,000 people were baptized by John based upon what we understand from history and the scripture. This was a massive movement of the Lord. Now, the Jews had baptism. And a lot of Christians don't think about that. But they had ritualistic processes of cleansing and pouring and washing and even submerging as part of their religion to demonstrate change, to demonstrate repentance, to demonstrate these things. Right? But it's all this highly ritualistic, you know, basically non-invasive type of things. You know, next Tuesday, we're going to have this, ex you know, extremely ornate ceremony where you show up in special robes and we're going to have this, you know, tank of water and you'll be submerged and it'll be... John is standing in the Jordan River, which is a muddy, it's a muddy creek in most places. And uh, where he's baptizing, you wouldn't even classify it as a river, but it is, you don't look at it and think, oh, no, there's a pleasant body of water. You know, <clears throat> it looks like a pretty good milkshake, you know what I'm saying? And just, he's he's literally very sternly saying, especially to those, you know, highly prestigious people in their flowing robes, you know, you are a snake, you are a viper, you're a brood, a group, an assembly of venomous snakes, and you need to get right with you, don't you, you bring your fancy robes down here, and I'll baptize you in this mud puddle so that you can demonstrate to the world that you've left your sinful ways behind, right? Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God, you brood of vipers? Scathing rebukes to these religious leaders. John is an amazing example in all of the Scripture. And of course, you know, this idea of his personality, again, uh, predicted Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 15 through 17, where he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will 
turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, capital H on that pronoun, in the spirit of and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You know, completely sober, completely serious in his conduct from the womb, filled with the Holy Spirit and turning the people back to God. Powerful, powerful life, powerful ministry, powerful voice from his youth, from his youth. Uh, you think about Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple, and they leave, and it's three days, right, before they find Jesus. And there it is recorded that he questioned the religious leaders. Um, it is incorrect to think that Jesus was there with an inquisitive mind asking questions so that he would better understand. Okay? The term that is used of he was questioning the religious leaders is the questioning that the religious leaders did for the young boys from the Jewish communities who went through what is referred to as the, the school of the book. So they would study particularly the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. By the time they were 12 years old and experienced their bar mitzvah, they had to have memorized I mean, I know it wasn't called Bar Mitzvah then, but it, you know that that when they had that uh, cresting over ceremony where they entered into adulthood at 13 years old, they they had to have memorized the first five books of the Bible, every single word, and in that, the religious leaders would question them about their understanding. They would ask questions about when Moses says whatever passage they were quoting, you know, what did he intend by that? <clears throat> they were required to quote the passage, and then the three leading scholars of their day, what those responses were, and then give a summarizing statement about that passage of Moses, wherever he was quoting from that's the questioning jesus was doing with the religious leaders at 12 years old he's saying to these you know elite religious men when moses says <laughs> what do you suppose he meant by that <clears throat> they must have thought him extraordinarily arrogant right we use that term precocious which actually just means mature beyond your age. Okay? So it can be complimentary. But there's that tone of arrogance involved. And that's how they guaranteed thought of Jesus. I, I have to wonder if some of them which were younger that were in the religious leadership <clears throat> witnessed that. And 
maybe didn't even interact, but noted the occasion of, who does this punk think he is? Treating our teachers this way. This is outrageous that he would behave this way. And then, right, he's 12. Just add, you know, 18 years later, and he begins his earthly ministry. And, you know, I wonder how many times they heard him speak before they went, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, I remember this guy, right? I know what this is about. John the Baptist has a similar course of life and behavior, right? They're, they're only really six months apart. John loses his parents, they're cousins, you know, and now John is the preacher. He doesn't even know Jesus is the Messiah, right? Because he has to be revealed by the Holy Spirit to John. You know, when you, you see the uh, Holy Spirit descend and remain upon, that is the one. He has a certain degree of knowledge about it, right? Probably from Mary and Elizabeth relaying to him the circumstances of their supernatural conceptions, but, you know, because he says, right, it's, I'm not even worthy to baptize you. But okay, you know, so then all things done, we'll go through this process. But then the Holy Spirit descends upon him and he goes, ah, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world in this process. Amazing, amazing man in what he's doing. You know, this idea of he's going to be filled with the Spirit from the womb, not going to drink strong drink. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. They are mutually exclusive in that passage in terminology. You, you want to drink as a Christian and you debate that whole issue? I'll leave you to wrestle with that, right? Okay. <clears throat> I, I think that you're in danger of getting swept off your feet given the power of that current and what's involved in all of that. But, you know, in, in the statement of Ephesians 5.18, the idea is that it's termed in the Greek in, as mutually exclusive. If you, if you are drinking, then you're going to get drunk, which is a pouring out in dissipation, to dissipate, to spread, to be thinned, to come to nothing, right? You know, you pull the note on the guitar and you look for the sustain, right? Bong, you hit one note and it dissipates, right? It comes to nothing, right? Where instead the contrast is instead go from dissipated to being filled. Go the opposite direction. Instead of Drinking to the point of dissipation, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is such a false teaching to act like, oh, yeah, be filled with the Spirit and you'll be drunk in the Spirit. That is such a blasphemous statement. Okay. <clears throat> you want to wrestle about right and wrong over this issue? You're right. It is one of those things that people could argue about. I'm not, I'm not putting an absolute answer on it, but I can put an absolute answer on the concept that the Holy Spirit creates junkedness. That is blasphemous. It's not true. The Holy Spirit does not do that. It, it, it's such a contradictory 
thought and concept. So, right, the works of the flesh versus fruit of the spirit, fruit of the spirit, self-control. Okay, tell tell me tell me alcohol adds self-control. Right? The smallest amounts, right? The smallest amounts. You know, this is one of the things that they have well documented about alcohol is the more you consume, right? The more inhibited you are as far as your function goes, but the less conscious you are of that. The drunker you are, the better off you think you are, which is the worse off that you are, right? This is why at one drink, a person would be like, I can't drive. I'm, you know, but at six drinks, they're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. <clears throat> it's the truth. That's, that's not just, you know, anecdotal. That's real studies saying that the drunker you get, the, the more in control you think you are, and in fact, the worse off you are in the process. It, it's, a, it's a really tricky, really, really tricky process. I'm so much better. Right? I like Jesus' approach. I'm not going to drink any more of this until I'm in the kingdom. That's my approach. You know, for myself and for everyone that I serve. Because, right? Okay, <clears throat> you say I'm free to do that. I think I'm free from that based upon what the scripture says. Not free to sin, free from sin. So there's a concept. But <clears throat> in the process, I, I don't think that the Holy Spirit is calling us to do these things for the sake of others. Right? What we do in moderation, our children do in excess. What I do in moderation, those that I lead do in excess. So when I refuse 100%, right? Oh, you could do it. <clears throat> okay, I could do it. I'll take it like a drink offering from the Old Testament, and I'll just pour it out for the Lord. Not, not for me. For everyone's sake that they can see. No, not for will. You know, I'll just pour this out before the Lord and let that benefit the body of Christ. So <clears throat> pet subject, as you well know, right? Not not just because of what I went through, it's a great portion of what I do in ministry and what this church is engaged in. Helping people in jail. It's just unbelievable how much drugs and alcohol are involved uh, with. How, how about main statistics, man? You know, <clears throat> we produce Allen's Coffee Brandy. Oh, hooray, right? Are you aware that Allen's Coffee Brandy is involved in 30% of, 37% of all domestic violence cases here in the state of Maine? Really, really drunk, really, really caffeinated. Brilliant. Right? right? <clears throat> Wide awake and hammered. Uh, well, this is the welcome to the state of Maine. You know, there's a reason we use that term "wicked" so much. You know what I'm saying? Wicked drunk. So, anyway, so uh, Jesus speaking of John, uh, Luke chapter seven, verse twenty-eight. I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Right? John ushers 
the Messiah in. The greatest honor of all the prophets. Greatest movement of all the prophets. Greatest degree of salvation of all the prophets. You know, people have like debated this whole issue. Well, think about this, you guys. In varying degrees, every one of the prophets is rejected. Right? To the point where Jeremiah is told, I'm paraphrasing, but the Lord tells Jeremiah, you will know that you're nailing it right on the head when no one's listening to you. <laughs> Good news. This is, <clears throat> this is the earmark of success in your ministry. When no one comes to your church, you're knocking it out of the park. That's what Jeremiah was told. Why? Because that's the end. Jeremiah is at the end, and he is known as the weeping prophet. He is just brokenhearted over what lies ahead. Lord gives him clear vision of the destruction and the mayhem and the suffering of what is immediately ahead, and he is destroyed by it. John is the opposite of all those prophets. The opposite, right? Because they're all watching that diminishing, and John is like, oh, here comes the king, right? He's ushering in the victory. He's ushering in the servant of humanity. He's ushering in the kingdom. That's a beautiful picture. He's the greatest. No, not a single miracle attributed to his ministry. Not one. Greatest prophet. Remember that. Remember that. Because uh, in the kingdom, you know, you get in certain groups of Christianity there, like unless it's a fireworks display of miraculous occurrences, then your ministry stinks. <laughs> Tell John that, right? Not one single miracle attributed to his ministry. And anyone in the kingdom is greater than John. We're in the kingdom. Right? We, we, why? We have the fulfillment of all these things in our mouths, in our mind, in our hands, in the Word. We have the New Testament. We can declare, right? We can declare the book of Revelation and the summation of all things, right? Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22. We, we, can, we can declare to the world how it all finishes out. So greater than John. Verse 4. Boy, I'm just digging through this chapter, aren't I? John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So this, uh, this uh, message of repentance, very, very important that we understand it, that it's a full turnaround. It's, it is not just the confession spoken of in verse 5. Confession is completely significant to the whole process, but if there isn't the change of behavior, then it's not repentance at all. Okay? If there's not a turnaround, if there's not a change in life, then, then it's not actually repentance. You know, it's conversation at that point. That's that's all it is. It's thought process and conversation. There has to be the accompanying change. And this is what John is preaching so harshly uh, to the people. It says, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. All. All. Right? Uh, that is a complete summation. 
you know, everyone eventually makes it. How did that begin? Because John has no social media whatsoever. He's not engaged in, he doesn't take the proper approach to marketing his ministry at all. Not, not at all. He does everything wrong. Just ev absolutely everything that you could possibly do wrong, he, he does it wrong. His message is harsh. You know, we would say unfriendly, confrontational. He's in the absolute wrong location. Do not. I mean, this place is just filled with bad things and bandits. <laughs> Why would you go out there? It's dangerous. You know, you, you, you built your ministry in the seediest section of town possible. You know, your seating's terrible. Your environment is just the worst. No one, no one would go to this today. This, you know, the, the church growth movement would have a fit with this whole process. Again, a million people, a million people heard him. You know, you have 500,000, about that's, you know, as we said, that's a thousand people a day. This guy is just slamming them and picking them up and slamming them. Up. You know, his lats must be just, you know. <laughs> seriously, all day. A lot of, lot of very repetitious work. You, you can hear the critics, right? I mean, a thousand people a day. I mean, how sincere can any of it be? Who cares? <laughs> That's up to them, right? My message is to stand out here and declare this message. That many people a day, you pretty much know that the guy was, where does he have time to preach? Right? He's preaching as he's dunking people, as he's taking the next one, as he's going right through the process continuously. He had disciples with him. Remember that. He had others with him, we assume that they were baptizing also, right? that, that they were participating in this. All the land of Judea, those from Jerusalem, went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River. There are some exclusions, right? Because the religious leaders rejected him. Jesus confirms that for us later, right? You know, what sign will you show us to verify the authority by which you do these things? Oh, let's see. I'll answer you if you'll answer me. John's baptism. Was it a men or heaven? Why? They don't answer because they didn't go out. They were not baptized. So there were those that rejected John's here. All of the common people, everyone who was of this place, they responded to it. Confessing. Amalageo is the word that is used there. And it is, the phraseology in English is to say the same thing. Okay. Um, I'm sure you have either been a person or experienced a person who just tries to reword things a little bit. <laughs> Somebody says, did you do the bad thing? Well, it depends on what you mean by the bad thing. You know, <clears throat> just got to be a little Bill Clinton in the moment and redefine what is, is, you know, just, just shift, 
Just maybe. I mean, it all depends. I mean, if you look at it from a different perspective, you know, I mean, I will openly confess. I, I, I do want to say I'm sorry. But, I mean, as far as what I mean by sorry, just, you know what I'm saying, right? And this is literally what this means, this amalageo, is to say the exact same thing. Meaning, I am in a place where I 100% agree with God's definition of me. Okay, that's the confession. Just, just calling sin, sin. Not an addiction or an illness. Just saying, this is sin. This is my rebellion against God. And then this is a big problem within the church, is there is no amalageo. No, no one is making the confession that God has made about them. Your drunkenness is sin. Your, 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 you know, use of pornography is lust, not an addiction. It is lust. It is sin in your heart. It is a lack of self-control. All these redefinitions. Well, but you don't understand how I was treated growing up. We're not looking for some kind of social justice warrior view about this. We don't need postmodernism, relativism making these definitions. We, we need the Word of God to declare the things as they are, and then we need to make confession according to what the Word of God says. That's, that's, that's okay, Lord. I'm going to search out what you have to say. And then when you make the statement, I'm going to agree with you. I've got to search it out. I've got to find it. And then I've got to make the confession. That's the confession being referred to here. Oh, but you don't understand. I was filled with remorse. Yeah, Judas was too. Right? Judas was just filled with regret to a degree you can't even imagine. He killed himself. But... No, Amalageo did not, did not make the open confession. Right? Peter did. And there was repentance, a full 180 degree turn, and a restoration from the Lord. And this is what Paul is telling us when he says, right, that worldly sorrow produces death. Think about that. Yeah, yeah, right. Total regret. Death. Godly sorrow produces repentance. The repentance is the, the 180 degree turn. It's the go the opposite direction. It's the do the opposite thing. How many people, they don't even realize, they're just like, you know, how whatever the percentage fraction of a degree is off, they're thinking, I, I'm totally repentant. I can't stand this. I hate this about myself. Yeah, but you're not changing. <laughs> you're not, you haven't. So you don't really, you don't really hate this. You don't really love the Lord and hate your sin because you continue, you continue in it. Right? 
you continue to consume it. You continue to take it in. You continue. It is you. Repentance is the go the opposite direction. They, they came, all of them. They repented for the remission of sins, and they made open confession. They did not. You know, I, I'm not going to name the school, but Keith Green in the 80s shows up doing a concert. Holy Spirit falls. Everybody's broken. He invites this, repentance and open confession, and the students begin to come to the stage and make open confession about their sins. And the dean and the leadership of the school literally come in and shut the PA off and close the concert and send everybody home. They, they stop the acts of repentance. Keith Green referred to them there openly to their faces as a brood of vipers. Same thing, same scenario. You're stopping repentance. And out of nothing more than embarrassment. We're a Christian college. All of these students are supposed to be Christians, and you've got them up here confessing their drunkenness and their thievery and their homosexuality. We can't stand for this. You stopped a work of the Holy Spirit, condemning, condemning. Asking for forgiveness is different than just saying you're sorry. Judas was very sorry, as we said. Verse 6, we'll go a little bit further here. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. A couple of things here. You know, modern minister wanting to look very pious, dressed in camel's hair. And later it was pointed out that the inside of his robe was lined with silk. Yeah. Comfortable, cool. <laughs> Looked good from the outside. John's was not just the skin of a camel. It was the hairs that were woven together as a fabric. And it was usually used for making satchels and bags. And very durable products. You didn't make clothes out of this stuff. Our modern equivalent wouldn't even come close. A burlap. You know, just get get the old, you know, not well seasoned, just the really rough coarse grain bag, you know. Cut a hole in the top and two on the side and just put it on like a vest and wear that around in the heat. <laughs> but camel's hair stinks and it's oily. It's as uncomfortable as you can possibly imagine. Fasting is in these same lines. That what you draw comfort from, you stop doing for a period of time in order that the discomfort would compel you into prayer and reading God's word and singing songs and deeper fellowship with the Lord. You know, People often say to me, "Well, I can't fast from food. You know, I'm a diabetic, and you know, or you know, any number of different circumstances." Well, you know, I think maybe you should. You know, do do half a day. You know, don't eat until dinner. Um, you know, 
vice versa, whatever. Stop eating at lunch. Fast until you get up the next morning. Any number of different things. But there are so many other things you can fast from. You know, turn the TV off for 24 hours. Just take the power supply right out of the Wi-Fi for 24 hours. That will be very uncomfortable and compel you to prayer. If if every time you pick up your device and try to log on, you know, you'll be you'll be amazed at how many times in a single day you have forgotten that you were even fasting. You know, that's right. Tomorrow I'm going to start my fast. No, no internet. You know, and you get up in the morning and you're like, why can't I check the weather? You know, why can't I read these headlines? Because you're fasting. Oh, that's right. That's right. And and you become aware of how dependent you are upon these things. There's so many things we can fast from. It's really important that agitation of the camel's hair, those who practice this, especially in the ancient world, that's what it was supposed to be. Every time in a single day, you about lost your mind because it was just dry, the smell, the itch, the just, I hate that. That's right. You're supposed to be uncomfortable and you're supposed to be compelled by the discomfort into the comforting presence of God. That was John's whole intention. That was the intention of those that used this practice. <clears throat> Locusts and honey, not a big discussion there. Other than to say, people are so uncomfortable with just accepting the Word of God for what it is and what it says that you are going to find those people that say, well, it, it didn't actually mean locust." It meant carob pods. So John really just, he had a big sweet tooth and he liked chocolate is what it is. You know, so he would just, he, eating them together, he would chew on the carob pods and eat the honey and it sweetened the whole thing. It was really wonderful. Yeah, a guy who wears camel's hair, is his diet is Hershey's? <laughs> I don't think so. You know what I'm saying? That's not the approach. And how about you just get yourself a Greek lexicon? It's really very simple. It wasn't carob. This man ate locusts. You know, lo locusts are pretty big. There's uh, interesting. You know, they're they're usually about the inside of your fist, like the, just the body. They often would take the wings off and the legs off, and you just it's like an insect Vienna sausage. Just, you know. Um, we turn our nose up at it. Um, all of the African markets offer uh, crickets and locusts as food source. Huge. Just, you buy it by the pound. Just go in. They season them, you know. You just, you're going to have people over and watch a movie, get, you know, a whole bunch of barbecues. For real, I'm not even making it up. And just, just sit around and eat this. Sounds gross. Mostly vegetation. You got a little bit of, you know, locusts in there. A little bit, but 
almost every everything they eat is vegetation. Uh, so uh, big markets, you can you can even order on Amazon <coughs> cricket flour. Okay, so uh, ground. They they do a thing with honey or oil, and you mix them together and make cricket butter. So, you know, great on the toast in the morning, apparently. You know, <clears throat> it isn't to say that that's the only thing that John ate. It is to say that this is the prominent portion of his diet. And in it is the image that God was sustaining him. Right? Trust the Lord enough to not have another job. He's simply functioning as an obedient minister and messenger and using the local food source as, you know, fast food. Just pick up a few of these locusts and let it sustain you through the day. Still haven't had an opportunity to eat them, but I, I literally am anxious for the day. you got to try it. I mean, you know, there comes a point where you're just like, hey, this guy sustained himself on it. Keeping in mind, right, think about the things we eat, right, lobster. Okay, totally forbidden according to the Levitical menu. It's It's on the menu now, right, because every creeping thing was in that sail, the sheet that was lowered down before Peter, and the Lord said, Arise, kill and eat. So the, the full menu has been opened back up to the human race. So that whole legalism doesn't need to be considered in this thought. But Levitical law forbids a lot of things, and people go, Oh, that's disgusting. How could you ever eat a locust? Well, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 22 these you may eat the locust after its kind. So all which is locust brand, you can consume it. Destro destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. So all on the menu. It's completely clean, completely allowed. Biggest reason is because it doesn't consume flesh. It consumes vegetation. So it's extremely clean. And as odd as you think of it, it's, it's incredibly healthy. Look, your peanut butter is way more dangerous than crickets and locusts. Okay. You know, the, the, the hydrogenated oil inside peanut butter is doing way more harm uh, to our body than crickets or locusts ever would. So again, it was his diet. Verse 7, he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. This was a cultural um, rule. I was going to say law, but I don't think it was actually a law, but it was a Jewish cultural rule that Jews did not uh, take someone else's sandals off, and especially the wealthy would do this. They had servants. They would come in the house and they would just hold their foot out and their, their servant would take their sandal off from their foot. In a wealthy home, they would actually 
have a servant who was, in the Jewish homes, a Gentile, who was the one who put people's sandals on and took them off because it was considered unclean for Jews to do that. You know, all that you're walking is an agrarian society, cattle and you know, herds are right in the streets with everyone else. You're walking through, you know, all of that all day long. Come home and here, take my sandal off. It was considered uh, not only um, um, non-kosher, but actually abusive. They viewed it as emotionally abusive to do this. Uh, the schools that trained uh, disciple people in ministry uh, would say, uh, you must do whatever your tutor demands of you. If you were in the school of Gamaliel, you know, like Paul, you're, you're, you must do whatever your tutor has asked of you except unlatching his sandal. Okay? So, so this is very commonplace in their mind, and John puts it forward with, I'm not even worthy to unlatch this guy's sandals. Like, if he were to ask me, I should do it, but it's unlatching his sandal is beyond me. Someone much better than me should be doing that. It's not speaking of how low John is. It's uh, speaking of how high Jesus is spiritually. John, John is giving that confirmation of Jesus' deity in the process. You know, consider... Right, that the earth is Jesus' footstool. And John recognizes, I'm not even worthy. Verse 8, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Remember, the, the other Gospels tell us that. And I'll just close with this statement. Chuck Smith is the origin of this statement. Show me a man on fire for Christ, and the world will come and watch him burn. And that's why John was so successful. He could go out into the wilderness where no one would think it right or natural for him to go. And John, out there ablaze for Jesus Christ, brought them out thronging to hear his message. There's a great admonition in that for us. That, that we want to be useful to the Lord, then we must be ablaze with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, there's the first eight verses in your introduction, so why don't we stand and we'll pray together. Pick up with chapter... Well, we'll have to finish this chapter. Maybe, maybe we'll get this chapter finished and get into two uh, when we're together next week. Father, I thank you very much for your love and your graciousness, your work and your word. I pray that you would help us to be, as John said, submitted to you, making straight the pathway for our Lord and King. Work in our hearts and mind, Lord, that we would be more like your Son, less like ourselves with every passing day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.